0: Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, the unity that we have. Father, I pray that um, you would open our eyes to the majesty, to the glory, and to the um, privilege we have of hearing your word. Lord, help us to understand it and walk in light of it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think most of you remember Um, after 9-11, that there was this really massive move uh, towards a greater unity as this country kind of came under attack. Uh, There was bipartisan agreement in the Congress, which, of course, got everybody's attention. There was a degree of of really niceness that increased among people. At least it felt that way. Secular newspapers kind of picked that up. There was this idea of... um, you know, expressing our commitment, our unity in this country with uh, flags, the American flag. And um, when the president addresses the country, even the prime minister of Britain comes over to support, to show the unity that we have. And, and, and so it was a pretty moving time, if you remember. But then it wasn't maybe six, nine months that it began to just get back to normal, maybe a year. And that was even picked up as well that the unity that we had just didn't last. What Paul is speaking about here, that the church is to have a unity that will last forever, a unity that will overcome all kinds of obstacles, kind of us and our sinfulness. But there's to be this unity uh, that we're called to, and, and Paul in this passage both calls us to a unity, he shows us how we're to walk in the unity, what are the characteristics, and then he even gives us confidence on on hoping that, yes, this is a reality. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll read 1 through 6. We read, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we're picking up in chapter four. A lot's been happening in chapters one, two, and three. Paul has been unfolding this glorious mystery of this gospel, that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, that in Christ's death for sin and in his resurrection over death, that God is doing more than saving individuals. He's actually he's reconciling and alienated people to God himself, that, that this is a new community. It's a new people. It's a new society. We're new creations. And then, and then we see in chapter 4, him move over with this transition of therefore. And he's moving over now to begin to urge us to do something. So you have this encouragement that he gives us in the first three chapters of all these, the enormity of the blessings in Christ. And then he begins to exhort us what to do with these blessings. He begins to exhort us to live in a certain manner. oftentimes theologians call this going from the indicative, who we are in Christ, to the imperative, what we are to do in Christ. It moves from theology to practice. Now, there's still theology in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but it takes a different focus. It's about what we are now to be doing. Now, Paul, in encouraging the church to do certain things, doesn't stand on his apostolic authority, saying, because I'm an apostle I want you to do this. Notice in verse 1, he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. He turns to his chains rather than his title. And he's saying, I'm in prison. But notice it's, well, the ESV says for the Lord. It's actually in the Lord. in other words, Paul doesn't see his imprisonment as coming from the hand of the Romans, but he sees it under the sovereign hand of God. Even the suffering that he's enduring is in the Lord. And so it's in him that Paul is saying, I urge you. Look at that word. I urge you, I plead with you, I appeal to you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul, in prison, in chains, is appealing to us, the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. Now, what does this mean? I mean what does it mean to be called of God? Well, to be called of God is really God's initiating grace whereby he moves towards us to deliver us from darkness of our own sin and really our own self-idolatry and draw us to Christ where we are redeemed, reconciled, and restored. That's what it means to call. God's calling us. Now, if you wanted to, you could go back to chapter 1 and see more of the details of this calling that God chose us before the foundations of the world, that God adopted us as his sons. This is all in Christ now, that God has both granted forgiveness and redemption to us in Christ, that God has sealed us in the Spirit, that God has revealed to us the immeasurable riches of Christ, that God has privileged us to display the wisdom and truth of God. These are all from God, his initiating grace to us. He's called us to these things. That's what it means to walk in the call, to walk in light of those truths that I just told you. When we were praying this morning, I mean, you hear these things, And I was actually praying that our souls would wake up to the reality of what it means to be granted forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ. It's profound. But he he gets a little more detailed in verse 3 where he says, to be eager to maintain in the unity of the spirit. In other words, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, it's one Greek sentence. And it really speaks to a Trinitarian salvation. The work of God and then it speaks about the work of Jesus, and then it, works, it speaks about the sealing of the Spirit. And so you see that salvation is a Trinitarian affair. And so what we have here is that if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it is to maintain this unity. In other words, the same unity in the Godhead is to be displayed in his body, the church. So to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is to maintain the unity that is to be found here, that is found there in God. Now, there's kind of a warning here and an encouragement to us. Number one, there's a warning that you and I are called to engage in this maintaining of the unity. Because we've been called by the grace of God does not mean we just sit and do nothing. In other words, the sovereign election and the sovereign move of God works hand in hand with human responsibility responding to that move of God. And so what he's saying here is that the call to be ethical, the call to be walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, is flowing from the spiritual reality. So in other words, the past blessings of Christ, the future promises of Christ, those are to be changing our present desires so that we want to walk in unity. We want to strive towards unity. That's the warning that you and I play a key role in that. You're engaged in this, or you're to be engaged in it, whether you are or not. But the encouragement is that when we do maintain this unity, in verse 1, that when we, when we follow the call, that we are making visible what is invisible. In other words, by our unity in this church, we are validating, we are confirming, we are making truthful, we are making believable the power of the gospel. Also, you're indicating that you are, in fact, in this new society, in this new community. If you don't care, or if you care a little about the unity, what does that say about your understanding of your own salvation? But when you do strive towards unity, you are making believable. That's what Jesus was praying in John 17, in verse 21. Jesus literally prays to the Father over our oneness, our unity. And he prays, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's a connection there between our unity and the believability of the gospel. That God has so ordained faith to be exercised by our witness. So they see our witness and they see the unity that takes place and they find God believable. That's how God has wired it. Now the question is do you pay attention to the unity of the church? I mean, is it something that you care about? You can't say, well, those folks are having some trouble over there, but I don't have an issue right now. You are involved, each one of us. And how much are you serving? How much are you doing to promote this unity? I mean, just am I looking to promote the unity of this church? It's a question you have to ask. He kind of gives us some instruction in verses 2 and 3. He calls us in verse 1. And then he explains in 2 and 3, in fact, how this unity is to be walked out, how you are going to maintain this unity. Look with me in verse 2. He says, with all humility. Now, you know, humility in the first century and before, a little bit before and after, was seen as a vice. It was seen as weakness. It was the temperament of a slave. So to be humble would have been a criticism. I don't think it's really different today. I think that... The modern man, the modern woman wants to be self-sufficient, self-supporting, want to be self-confident. Self-esteem is a big issue. And so humility doesn't seem to really fit into that paradigm. The word humility actually means lowliness of mind. It's an attitude before it's an action. This idea of humility is really this. It's having an honest appraisal of who you really are. You know, Paul says in Romans that we ought not to think too highly of ourselves, but we ought to think of ourselves with sober judgment. In other words, we don't want to just always say, well, we're just a bunch of worms. No, God has created us as his highest creation. But we also don't want to say, well, we're God's. You know, it's an honest appraisal. But it's an honest appraisal of who we are in light of who God is. So, in other words, you have to look at yourself and who are you in relationship to God? And many of you are intelligent, you're gifted. But again, in relationship to God, those are all gifts of God. So humility is a person who can recognize their absolute dependence on the grace of God for all that they have. They see their brokenness. They see their shame. They also see that they've been created in his image. But they are fundamentally, absolutely, massively dependent upon God. And that brings about a humility that's profound. It equalizes us, not in a negative way. It just helps us to recognize, well, she's as dependent as I am on God, that we're all dependent. And it brings about a unity. You know, pride, this idea of lifting oneself above the others, creates divisions and creates separation and sex within the church. This fact that I do something better than another. This building up of self-esteem. People need self-esteem. No, they don't. They need legitimate humility is what they need. There's a picture once of a, kind of a field, and they had the split rail fence, and the posts were every 10 feet, and on top of one post was a turtle. And, and And the implication is he didn't get there on his own. Someone put him there, and that's the same thing for us. We don't get anywhere on our own. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are. And so humility is fundamentally important if we're going to maintain unity in this church. But not just humility, he points out this idea of gentleness. And that word for gentleness is really meekness. There's a courtesy, there's a care uh, to those who are hurt. To be meek would be to allow others to think about me in the way that I admit myself to God. That, that, that I, I don't, I waive the right to try to promote in you a better opinion of myself. Uh, to be gentle Is not to be harsh and brash, but it's to be sensitive, not retaliatory if someone wounds me. The the word meekness actually means strength under control. It's like that wild stallion that has been tamed. It has sheer power, but it's now under control. So meekness is not weakness, but it's strength under control. You can just imagine how sweet this would be in a church. The opposite would be disaster, right? The firecracker, the one that has the the one that pops off. You just say some cross word to him, and they explode. You know the divisions and the separations that can cause in the church. But to be gentle is is kind of sweet, and it's um, yeah, it enhances the unity of the church. It maintains it. And thirdly, look what he, he says here: patience, bearing with one another in love. The word for patience means long tempered. This idea of they don't have a short fuse, they don't pop off quick, that they just can endure, they bear with one another. The idea of bearing really is a yielding, it's a giving way, it's renouncing our rights to get even. It, it, it allows people to offend you without you have to respond right away. It, it allows people to just inadvertently say the wrong thing and you're not going to pull away from them. It, it gives grace to fellow sinners is what it is. Carol is uniquely gifted in this with me. I can probably be a little quicker out of the gate with thoughts and comments. And there have been thousands of potential fights that have been averted because she just kind of steps back as Tom, the battle cruiser, comes flying through the house. She steps out of the way and very, very helpful in averting a lot of... So patience, endurance, is necessary for the unity of the church. A quick-tempered person or one that is highly sensitive to any error or anything said wrong by another person, it, it breaks up that unity. And then last, if you look with me in verse 3, to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. So peacemaking is essential to a church growing in unity. Now that word for bond is really the word fetter fetter is a manacle. That helps. It's a manacle. It's a chain that is usually placed around the ankle of a prisoner to the floor to bind them or to a wall. And so these fetters of peace are what bind the Christian to one another. What he's saying is this. If we want to have unity in this church, so he's called us to unity. These are the characteristics that we want to be peacemakers with those with whom we have conflict. That we don't let the sun go down on our anger. That we don't just avoid conflict. That we reconcile it. We're not peacekeepers. We're not just keeping you know, th- that idea of <clears throat> just don't move quickly. Just let sleeping dogs lie. No, that's not the peacemaker. The peacemaker is willing to engage in the costly battle of trying to bring peace between people. Not just your own conflict, by the way, but also if you perceive conflict in others that you're seeking to maintain the unity of the church. Now, folks, when you hear these things, you can just imagine how sweet a place would be when you see the the humility and the gentleness and the patience, forbearance, and peacemaking. You can just imagine the strong unity that we would have as a church or even in a family. Just put these in your family. Would they not be sweet? And the reason that Paul calls us to do this is because he knows the church is filled with redeemed sinners. We're going to offend each other. We're going to say the wrong things. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. You will fail each other. That is the nature of the church. Let's not be afraid of that. God is doing a work in his people where he is sanctifying them from glory to glory. We don't go from zero to ten as Christians. We go zero to one and then maybe back to half and then to one and a half and then back to three quarters. You know, we're moving incrementally from glory to glory. But in that process, the unity of the church is fundamental to declaring the glory of God. And so because we will sin against each other, because we will offend one another, because we will step on each other's toes, perhaps intentionally or inadvertently, he's saying, no, be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. So that's the call. Would you at least pray with me for these things? If you see them in your life, thank God for his grace. If you want to see them in your life, then seek God for his grace. Ask God to grant to you greater patience, greater humility. The people that say don't pray for patience because God will give it to you, and they imply by that that you're going to have trouble coming, I don't believe that. I believe that you can ask God for this, that you can see God's face and say, please, Father, I need to be more forbearing. You are forbearing with me. So ask God for that. Now, so Paul is calling us in verse 1. He calls us clearly to walk worthy of that which we've been called. In verses 2 and 3, he explains to us how we can now walk in that manner that he's called us to walk. And he's giving encouragement or confidence to us. Now, you may say, well, I've seen the church for many years and I don't think we'll ever walk in unity. Was, uh, you know the verse in Matthew 18 that if two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them? Well, one author kind of retranslated it after years pastoring in the church. He said this. It really means that, we're, that if two, Jesus is saying, that if two or three of you can agree on anything, then I will show up myself to see if it's true. And... and that is just the nature of the church. But there is confidence for us. Look with me in 4, 5, and 6. He has seven, he repeats seven times this oneness idea. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's almost like a hymn that the early church may have sung, which some scholars believe it was. It's this repeating refrain that our unity in this church, if it is to survive, will be a unity grounded in the Godhead himself. It's in the Trinity himself. While there are seven ones, you see Him kind of hovering around three things, the spirit, the Lord and God. In other words, Kind of mirroring chapter 1, so chapter 4, you have the Trinity play a role in the salvation, and now you have the Trinity playing a role in our unity. And it makes sense. Look with me. There is one body and one spirit that you know it's the spirit that brings unity to the church. The spirit is the one that calls us from darkness to light, right? That all believers, whether whatever ethnic background, whatever color, whatever education, all believers are convicted by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God holds up the glory of Christ that you move in belief toward him. That's the work of the Spirit. He illuminates. He empowers. He orchestrates. He organizes the church. Right in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. We're all baptized in the Spirit. This is why when you meet Christians from other lands, you have nothing in common with them, and yet you have a bond with them. You get excited to talk about Christ, even though you have no connection to them. Why? Because they share the same spirit that you have. So the spirit is working at creating unity. So is the Lord. Notice he says one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one Lord that hung on a tree. There's only one king. There's only one savior. There's only one Lord that's going to come back in glory and power. There's only one for all of us. You don't have a different one than I have. And this one Lord we have come to And through one faith. Now, I don't think he's speaking about this one faith. I don't think he's talking about the subjective experiences that we may have in terms of our experiences in the faith. But I think he's talking about the content of the faith. In other words, Jesus is the focus and the object of the faith. And so we come to this one Lord through this one teaching of Christ and we're baptized into him. Don't think he's speaking about water baptism, but just being baptized in Christ in Galatians 3, 25 and 26, Paul speaks about we're all baptized in Christ. This one Lord, one faith, prompted the early church fathers with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. They tried to boil the faith down to the essentials, that we could all say, this is what we believe. And whether we're Presbyterian or Methodists or Baptist, we believe this about Jesus. Therefore, we are one in the faith. But then he says there's one God, Father overall." In other words, God is moving us towards unity. Why? Because we share the same Father. I mean, my brother and I couldn't be more different, and yet we are together. Even when we didn't get along as well when we were younger, we were still one in the sense that we share the same Dad. And so as Christians, we have the same Father. There aren't two fathers for sets of Christians, there's just one. So, so I want you to see that the confidence that I have in calling you to walk in these characteristics, to be united, is that we are rooting ourselves, we are trusting in, we are basing our unity upon the unity of the Godhead that has saved us. In fact, John Stott says this, he says, The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. Now, you may say, well, well, that doesn't really flesh out well, Tom. I mean, there's thousands of denominations, there's church splits. You have just a history of infighting among the church. What do we say to that? How do we understand this unity that I'm calling for to be in concert with the experience that we have? And I would simply try to introduce one distinction, and that is... Um, called the universal church, that, that the church, the universal church, and I want to caveat this because I think it's overemphasized, but the universal church is the way God sees the church, right? He sees believers in all kinds of different denominations, that he sees believers as they are in Christ, and there is one church that we will have in glory. So, the different denominations now, uh, so, so that's the universal church. Now, sadly, I think a lot of people look at the universal church and they opt out of the local church because they can say, well, I'm just part of the universal church. But Paul's commands are given to the local church. So you've got to be in the local church to be part of the universal church. And the reason Paul gives this command to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is because we are that visible display of the unity that the scriptures are teaching about. That God sees us as one, so the world is now to see us as one as we display that unity. So it's, it's important for us to walk in this unity, to maintain the unity that he has created, that we don't want to hinder this unity. So I, I just want to give you a few things to consider in terms of, in terms of applying this to you. First, I would ask you to keep the unity in this church. You have to care about it. It's important that you care, that you pay attention, that that you think through your life and your actions, am I working and am I walking in a manner that will promote unity? And, and, And promoting unity really can begin with avoiding certain things, like, A, gossip. We avoid gossip. You know, the Greek word for gossip means to whisper. You know, gossip isn't sharing false information. That's slander. Gossip can be sharing truthful information, but it's in a surreptitious way. It's kind of like without the person there, so it's a little darkened. I'm sharing truthful information about somebody, but I don't want him here to hear it. And that just creates, it just makes inroads into our unity. Not just that, but I would ask you to care about it so far as build on what is common between you and other people. In other words, we tend to love to point out the differences that we have with others we value differences more than we value that which is common this i think will ultimately break the back of the fundamentalist church the fundamentalist church loves to define themselves in opposition to everybody else this is why we're different and they're building on differences i I almost thought it was a class in seminary for me we love to talk about the differences we love to get into why we're different from somebody else we didn't spend near the time on what was common that we held in common and that we held near and dear to us. So I would encourage you to not build on differences, to spend more time thinking about the commonalities that we have with one another in Christ as Lindsay was giving word to during our, during our singing. I would also ask you to, to repent of your rightness. Everybody thinks they're right. I know you think you're right on the opinions you hold. That's why you hold them. And I think I'm right. Now, folks, we can't all be right. And so I I would ask you to repent of what you think you're right on. You may be right. You might not be right. But this idea, I'm classic for thinking I have got the answer. I just feel like I have it. And so I have to be suspicious of my own perceptions. I want to be suspicious of thinking I'm always right. Because guess what? I'm not always right. There was this one time. (laughs) It was about 28 years ago. But I was actually wrong. So so be suspicious of your own perceptions, especially when it relates to this body that you're in. So that's the first thing to care about it. Secondly, I would want to ask you, or I'd want to say, that keeping unity comes by remembering that not all differences are divisions. Now, this is the fun part of this application. You know, we all have we have different preferences. We have different opinions, we have different tastes, we have different positions. What unity is not uniformity, unity is not sameness. You know, First Corinthians 12 makes us clear that the body has many parts. Th- that, that we can hold differences of opinion, and, and we can value certain things differently without it leading to divisiveness or even separation. So, for example, me wearing a tie, You know the, the dress, Carol was talking to a, a person uh, not in this church, Honest Engine, not in the church, and, and the woman just said, you know, preach not wear more tie when he preaches. That's really troubling me. That, that, that if I took my tie off, or if I preached with a tie, that'd be troubling. I, I like preaching with a tie. It doesn't matter to me, frankly. But does that matter to you? Is that a preference that you really think it's important to some people, and they can elevate it high? Or, or musical preferences. There are hymns and there are songs. We are very divided on that oftentimes, that we like hymns. Some of us like the more current songs. Frankly, there are some hymns that I just don't like. There are some songs that are modern I just don't like. Now, now sometimes my dislike for them may be their bad theology or their lack of singability, but, but there are some that I just don't like that other people like. Charles knows there's a... I, I finally came out one day, I said, I just hate that song. I hate that song. And it was a beautiful song. When I read the words, it was beautiful. I just don't like it. But, but I'm called, and you're called, to submit some of these preferences one to the other. Or, or the issue of uh, parenting philosophies or educational philosophies, we're very different in here as to the way we think what is right in terms of raising our kids or what we allow our kids to do. And some of those things can all of a sudden, they're non-essentials. Now, I will not say that a non-essential is unimportant. A non-essential can be important. I just don't want to lose sight that it is a non-essential. But it can be a real dividing point among people. It can really work against the unity of the church. So I would ask you to be mindful of that, to be suspicious of your own perceptions. And, and then thirdly, to keep the unity, I think we have to obviously keep the gospel central. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, here's what he says. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is what Paul calls first importance. Now, if he says this is first importance, what does it imply about certain other things? It would be second importance. And so the question is, do we keep the gospel central? Do we rejoice over the gospel? Do we speak about the glory of God in saving us in Christ? Do we consider with just mind-bending thoughts the nature of Christ's leaving glory, Not, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he humbles himself by becoming a man, servant even unto death. Does that not bind us? Does it not attract us? Should that not be the focus of most of our conversations? Just this awe over God and what he's done for us in Christ, rather than secondary differences that may trouble us. So I would ask you to keep the gospel central. Now, saying that, I do want to say that keeping the unity in the church does mean not keeping a false unity. We don't want to say in this church the truth doesn't matter. We don't want to say that we don't have differences here. We do have differences here. But I would just remind you that in Romans 14, Paul speaks about disputable matters, that there are issues that we may dispute over. The role of women. We could be disputing over the the frequency of communion, over church membership, over the millennium. I mean, there's a lot of things that we we would consider disputable matters. They're, They're important, and they're worthy of discussion. But again, they're not worthy of separation. There are some things that are worthy of separation. And, and, and we, we want to look at those things and say, ask questions like, you know, how clear is this doctrine in Scripture? And, and how clear is this doctrine to others? Do others, outside of our little think tank, do others find the doctrine as clear? And how near is the doctrine to the gospel? How close is it to that which is of first importance? And then we ask questions like, what is the practical effect if we allow disagreement over this doctrine? So, I mean, we try to think through things before we just say, that's different, I'm out of here. We want to walk through and how, how is this really of first importance? Because remember, when you get this migratory pattern of the American evangelical, it does not display well the unity that the churches are to have. So it's a very good word for us. That Paul, with his chains, binding him to the floor of a prison cell, is not concerned about himself, but he's concerned about the church and her unity. And he is urging us to walk in a manner worthy, to maintain, to be eager, to be eager, to be excited, to to be moved to want to maintain the unity of this church. And folks, each one of you will play a role in that. I mean, each one of you will either advance it by doing nothing, It's working against the maintaining of it. And so I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage us in this prayer time that we can be asking God for grace to walk in a manner worthy of the great calling to which let's even ask the Lord to just be overwhelmed with what it means that God would call us. So I will start in prayer, and what we do in this prayer time uh, is I would just, I will start Pray uh, with prayer and then you can join responding to the word in prayer. I would ask you to pray briefly so that others may pray. I would ask you to pray loudly that we could hear you and join with you in the prayer. And what we're really doing in a way is we are communing with one another in God, just like we will on that day we see him face to face. So let me begin and then um, and then Keith will close us in just a moment. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ, that in him we are one with you and the Spirit. Father, we want to make visible, we want to make truthful, we want to make believable the glory of the gospel. And we want to do this through our unity that we might display the beauty of the triune God in our diverse union. So Father, would you further that through humility and through patience and through gentleness and through peacemaking. Father, raise up issues in the hearts of your people here that we need to attend to, to maintain this glorious unity that was bought with the blood of your Son. pray this in the name of Jesus.